Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. In episode 26, we featured Group Captain Matthew McCormack of the Royal Australian Air Force, where we discussed the Australian-led multinational large force employment exercise called Pitch Black. Pitch Black is a biennial exercise, and this year it took place between August 19th and September 8th, and it hosted over 2,000 personnel and over 80 aircraft. The exercise provides an opportunity for participating Air Forces to share best practices and an opportunity to test and improve force integration by utilizing one of the largest training airspace areas in the world, which is over the Northern Territory and Queensland. The Royal Air Force participated in an exercise pitch black this year with four Eurofighter Typhoons, a Voyager air refueling tanker, and the A400M Atlas multi-role strategic transport aircraft. Joining me to talk about Royal Air Force participation, and in keeping with our focus of speaking with senior leaders, is Wing Commander Noel Rees, a Typhoon pilot and commanding officer of Number 6 Squadron. We discuss the logistics of fighter aircraft traveling across the globe, flying during the exercise, and training opportunities the RAF was able to do with other forces like the Indian Air Force. Wing Commander Rees also shares his thoughts on training for air warfare in the modern age. I encourage you to listen to episode 26 as a precursor to this episode, but I'm confident that you will also enjoy this related episode as a wide-ranging and informative discussion. Let's cue the music. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I'm very happy to have Wing Commander Noel Rees from the Royal Air Force as our guest. The Wing Commander was the detachment commander on the Royal Air Force's participation at Exercise Pitch Black, which was hosted by the Royal Australian Air Force. So Wing Commander Rees, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, thank you, sir. Well, as I do with all of my guests, I start by asking what made you join the military and what made you pick the branch that you did? So there's no uh, military in my family, so it came as probably a bit of a shock to the family. Um, I have always been interested in aviation, um, always wanted to fly aircraft um, ever since I was young. Um, and when I went to school, I joined the Combined Cadet Force, um, RAF cadets at the school. And my very first day in RAF uniform, a Wessex helicopter landed in the quadrangle of the school. And they took us flying around the, uh, around the town. Uh, and I thought, well, this is pretty cool. Uh, and that sort of started to sway me towards joining the RAF. And then the very first summer camp I did as a, an air cadet was at RAF Culture Shore, where they were flying the Jaguar. Oh, right. Probably visiting six squadron as it was then. Um, and I sat in the back of a Jaguar and right on cue, um, about five Jaguars flew over the top and I thought, this looks really good. I think I'll do this. <laughs> and that's pretty much where it started. Um, so yeah, hooked from an early age, I'd say. Good for you. That's awesome. I, you know, I'm sitting here with a smile on my face thinking I'd probably be hooked exactly like you were. So, uh, very, very cool. And so now that you're hooked, what was the process to actually enter the Royal Air Force and what were some of the early platforms that you flew? 
So I joined through a series of sponsorships and scholarships. Um, so going through uh, sixth form, so going through my A-levels, 17, 18, I was sponsored by the Air Force and then went into university and actually started doing a lot of the flying on a university air squadron um, local to the university that I was um, studying at. And there you got a little bit of a sense of what the RF was like, but also I went through my elementary flying training on the Bulldog initially and then into the Tutor, um, which is what the air cadets are flying in at the moment. Um, so I did my elementary flying training while I was at university and I was studying aerospace engineering at the time as well. So a sort of aviation through and through really, uh, and then joined the Air Force after that, um, went through the standard officer training uh, and then into basic fast jet training on uh, the Takano at Linton on Ouse, then to Valley on the Hawk. Um, and then from there, I was chosen to fly the Tornado F3. Uh, went to spend about three years up at Lucas near St Andrews in Scotland, um, flying the Tornado F3 on 43 fighter squadron, uh, just at the time that the F3 was drawing down. And then uh, I went to instruct at RAF Valley uh, on the Hawk T1 as attack weapons instructor. So after Valley uh, instructing, I moved over to the world of Typhoon uh, and initially started in the simulator where I initially was instructing some ground school sims on the systems of Typhoon uh, and also instructing emergency sims in the simulator building at the Typhoon training facility at RAF Coningsby. Um, and then from there, I did a trial um, uh, in terms of synthetic training, uh, it was called Pandora's Buzzard, where it was trying to see how much you could do of the conversion units synthetically, um, which was quite a, a good way to get into flying Typhoon itself. And after that, uh, it was posted onto the OCU to instruct on Typhoon. From there, I moved to instruct in the air as well uh, and did three years on the Typhoon OCU. Uh, one of the years I did was as a display pilot in 2014. And then after that, I moved up on the front line to Six Squadron, where I did both of my tours on the front line have been on Six Squadron, one as a flight commander, uh, and now as the boss. That is awesome. Uh, you know, I, I believe I was in the UK in 2014, so I'm pretty sure I saw you fly as the Typhoon display pilot. You know, one of the things that I love about the Typhoon display that I've seen in the UK, which is markedly different from uh, other air displays, uh, tactical air displays that I've seen, is um, oftentimes, uh, it, and I know most of the time you guys are slick, but I have seen, um, and it could have been BAE pilots now that I think of it, but I've seen displays where it's a full up ordnance load of air to air and air to ground ordnance and external tanks. And I just, every time I look at it, I'm like, that is an awesome display. Yeah, the BAE systems uh, flew, I think it was a couple of years after, um, they flew a fully loaded Typhoon, um, part of demonstration of the capability uh, for a project that was called Centurion, which was bringing in some of the newer capabilities to Typhoon, including Paveway 4 and Brimstone 2. Um, so to demonstrate, not only can the aircraft perform amazingly when it's clean with no tanks on at all, um, it was trying to show that not only can we have all these weapons on board, but also it performs pretty uh, pretty outstandingly as well while it's got all those uh, weapons on it as well. Oh, for sure. I know I saw you fly in 2014, but yes, you're right. Uh, it, it was a few years later that those displays with ordnance uh, occurred, but 
absolutely amazing to see. Um, yeah, you know, the Typhoon is just a, a beautiful, beautiful aircraft. And uh, I've had a number of guests um, that have flown it, and uh, they're going to be published in, in the coming months. Um, but one of the neatest things I remember hearing about is a delivery out of Wharton, where you take off and you point it up, and you're actually getting transonic warnings uh, still accelerating and going higher in altitude. And I just, that put a smile on my face. It's a very slick airplane. When it's clean, nothing hanging off it. Um, it is very slick indeed. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, at times the speed is actually quite tricky to control um, because it is very slippery. So pointing down, downhill and we're sort of descending, um, it can accelerate pretty quickly. So, uh, yeah, it's very impressive and very different to the Tornado F3. Um, what I tell people is, is it can do what the tornado three could do plus a lot at 10,000 feet higher. So um, the, the tactics for air defense haven't really changed a huge amount since then, but actually um, the performance of the aircraft has changed remarkably, um, which really, really uh, it, it's a joy to fly. Certainly. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Well, uh, so what's it like to command six squadron? Um, you know, you've been in the squadron for a little while now. And I ask because I like to weave in discussions about leadership. Um, what's it like to lead a frontline fighter squadron in the Royal Air Force? Well, I think this has probably been the, um, the sort of pinnacle of my career so far. Um, it's something that's ever since you join a fast jet squadron, um, you sort of look up and think, you know, could I do that one day? Could I be in charge? Um, and it's a great privilege, uh, but also a load of responsibility comes with that as well. Um, so I've got around about 140 people on the squadron. Um, and going through as a pilot, you spend quite a lot of time looking after your own abilities um, as you go through training. There's a lot of, you know, sometimes five years worth of training where you have to concentrate on yourself all the time. And what's interesting now as a uh, squadron commander is that I've got a 140 people to look after, which is a unique uh, situation for for pilots, really, because it um, our career streams go very much; uh, they get very wide very quickly in terms of how many people you get to look after. Um, so it's 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 really interesting in that respect because you're in charge of the engineers, um, the support staff. Um, any civilians that work as well as as well as just the pilots um, and it brings with its 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 own rewards um, because there's loads of different challenges uh, looking after people um, and invariably commanding people to go and do you know, whatever mission sets and jobs we have to do and sometimes they can be um, uh, short notice um, and therefore trying to instill that sort of feeling of camaraderie while trying to deliver the mission um, is is a real sort of challenge, and but it's also very rewarding. Yeah. Um, how many aircraft is a number six squadron assigned? So all the squadrons around the Typhoon Force have around about 10 aircraft. Um, so at any one time, what we try and do is we try and fly uh, four ships, um, so four aircraft going up at any one time. Um, but also, as, as, as well as um, our training flying, we have operational tasks as well. So contributing to quick reaction alerts at Lossiemouth, um, both for NATO and national quick reaction alerts, um, takes part of our resource. So we take in a rotor to look after those aircraft as well. Um, so the, the fleet 
of aircraft changes quite uh, quite regularly um, as we move aircraft from either our own training fleets onto QRA or potentially out to operations in RAF Acuteria as well. Right. And, and I ask that because the topic of this particular episode is the Royal Air Force participation at Exercise Pitch Black in Australia. And my understanding is that aircraft from your squadron flew to Australia from RAF Akateri, which is in Cyprus. Um, I've had the privilege to go to that base and to see the typhoons and the tornadoes fly there. Absolutely awesome. Uh, but yeah, I believe you guys started that exercise or traveled to Australia from Akateri. We did. And there's lots of different reasons for that. Um, but part of it is that when we operate as a typhoon force, we genuinely do operate as a force. And so although six squadron were tasked with the exercise itself, there are a number of different units which facilitated us being there and us, us um, getting to Australia. And part of that was the squadron who was in Akrotiri at the time. Um, we sent some of our own engineers over there to um, support them in preparing the aircraft. Um, and we flew the aircraft that were from Akrotiri, um, flew them to Australia. And then when they returned, they actually came back to the UK, but didn't come back to Lossmouth, but went back to Coningsby. So when I was saying about the fleet um, changing quite regularly, this is just one of those movements that happened to occur. Um, but it meant that we could actually all deploy to Cyprus initially, uh, effectively group there with our Voyager aircraft as well that was um, supporting us across there, and also the uh, A400 Atlas C1, which was um, supporting the trail as well as what we call the sweeper. Um, so we all effectively grouped up in Cyprus and then went from there. Interesting. And the reason why Typhoons deployed to RAF Akateri is for, um, I believe right now, it's uh, the principal mission is the Op Shader missions, which is what I was there to see. Um, so when you deployed the four Typhoons out of Akateri towards Australia for exercise pitch black, um, were there replacement aircraft at uh, Akateri or, or other aircraft at Akateri to continue the Op Shader mission? So the, the op shader mission continued um, as before. Uh, and so the aircraft that came uh, from different tasks in Europe um, came back via Akrotiri uh, and they were then uh, moved around, prepared. I'll say the, the, the numbers changed quite rapidly and the individual airframes changed quite a lot um, of what's based in shader. It's not a permanent um, footing in terms of the specific aircraft that are there. So in that fluidity of, of the aircraft moving around, um, there were additional aircraft there, which we then took on to Australia. And as I say, we brought them back to the UK. Right on. Um, so you got to tell me about now flying from RAF Akateri uh, in the Mediterranean at, in Cyprus all the way to Australia. It's uh, not a short distance and uh, fighter jets are not known for their legs. So um, I'd love to hear how, how you got there. So, uh, starting off from Akrotiri, um, we took a route uh, over to the UAE, uh, and that took around about five hours, uh, and we did about three times en route, uh, we air-to-air refueled from the Voyager. So, an A330, um, which carried not only the fuel for us, but also uh, some of our um, logistical support, and also engineers to assist us at every stop. So we stopped at um, UAE initially, 
uh, and then from the UAE flew uh, across to India uh, and landed at Delhi. Does Delhi have an airbase, or did you just land at uh, at the international airport? So from the UAE, we flew into Delhi International Airport. It has a um, uh, Indian Air Force base attached to it, okay. which mostly uh, has their uh, VIP moves, etc. Um, so there's a large pan space for us to be able to land. And there's actually quite an ideal place to, for us to land because we could actually park the typhoons uh, next to the Voyager, which means that when the engineers are seeing off the typhoons, as soon as the typhoons are ready to go, they can just walk down the line up the steps onto the Voyager and then the Voyager can start and we can taxi off. Right. Right. Makes sense. Awesome. So after, after India, the next leg. So the next leg from India took us into Singapore. Uh, and that was uh, probably the longest leg we did around about six hours um, into Singapore. Uh, and then from Singapore into Darwin. You know, it strikes me actually um, because a fighter cockpit is a fairly small space. Um, it seems like with the route that you were taking, you wouldn't have had to wear an immersion suit just because it seems like most of the waters that you'd be flying over are fairly warm. Or am I am I wrong? No, that's right. We um, most of the way we didn't wear immersion suits because of the sea temperatures and also the sea states that were below us were uh, relatively benign. Um, if it was a little bit rougher, um, then if there was. Uh, uh, slightly, if we we're going slightly further north, and yes, we would. Um, but the other thing we have to consider is uh, in cockpits is the uh, environmental pressures on us uh, when we're crewing into the aircraft as well. So, uh, going through the United Arab Emirates, um, it was around about forty-five degrees um, on the pan, which uh, makes for pretty uncomfortable crewing. So um, you've got to take that into account as well. So most of the time, we weren't flying uh, with immersion suits. Yeah. Oh, well, th- thank goodness for that at 45 degrees. Uh, boy, that's for sure. Um, so now that you're in Australia, talk to me about the reasoning behind the RAF traveling that distance to participate in a Royal Australian Air Force exercise. So there's a few reasons. Um, for us as a squadron, um, we were in a position to deploy uh, in terms of our high readiness status that we were holding anyway. Um, so we were able to deploy. And it's it's a way of us practicing our ability to deliver global operations anyway. So uh, being able to go across the other side of the world, a lot of it was in getting there. Um, that is where a lot of the exercise uh, value came for us, uh, even just on en route. Um, so the other reasons are that the Australian Air Force uh, and the other participants, a lot of them are sort of long-term partners of the Royal Air Force. So the Australian Air Force, we work with quite regularly in Exercise Red Flag. Um, the US, obviously, based in the UK and also Exercise Red Flag as well. Um, but there is a number of other nations. Um, India um, has had the Indra Danush um, exercises both in the UK and in India. Um, so all of those different countries we've worked with previously, uh, and it just meant it gave us it gave us an opportunity to work with them uh, again uh, and work with a, another set of you know nations that we haven't worked with before. Um, so I've not personally not worked with the Singaporeans before. Um, so it was good just to be able to share um, share our experiences with those other nations and just to see how other nations operate um, alongside in in a in a large multinational large force employment exercise. 
Yeah, right on. And just to make sure that we acknowledge all of the uh, RAF participation uh, during exercise Pitch Black, uh, it was the four typhoons that you guys flew down, uh, the Voyager and the Atlas, as you mentioned. Uh, but I believe there was also RAF participation in the E-7 Wedgetail aircraft that the Australians operate, because to my knowledge, there's Royal Air Force personnel on board those aircraft as well. So part of the E-7's engine service, as well as very similar to uh, the P-8, uh, which we have based here at RF Lossmouth doing the maritime patrol task around the UK waters. Um, we have something called Seacorn, where um, if there's a capability gap, um, for instance, the E3 uh, going out of service, or uh, for the maritime patrol, it was the Nimrod, then we engage with other air forces and air forces that operate the aircraft that we're going to bring into service, and we'll send some of our people over. So although the RAF personnel were over there, with the E7. They weren't actually part of my detachment. Uh, they were part of Seed Corn. So they were part of the uh, route to get us uh, E7 into service here at RF Lossy Mouth as well. Awesome. Uh, Lossy Mouth sounds like it'll be a very, very busy place in the near future. It seems like it already is, but, uh, but it'll be awesome when the E7 is there to join the P8s and the Typhoons. Um, so now that we've kind of established who was in Australia, um, tell me a little bit about the exercise and how it might differ from tactical air exercises that you would have participated in the UK and in Europe. So the first thing is the trying to bring all those different nations together means you have to find a sort of common ground and a common playing field. So the exercise itself was unclassified, which meant that uh, you could then uh, talk freely with other nations within the exercise scenario and therefore the scenario itself and all the different mission sets that were put together were allowed commonality between all the nations that was one of the major aims as i've mentioned before of us going there was to be able to work with other nations and sometimes classification becomes a barrier to working with other nations um, for obvious reasons and so it was an unclassified wrapper that was placed around the exercise which meant you could um, you could operate um, as you as you wished so for the exercise large force employment uh, missions what was fascinating was to be able to see how the other nations work and those who are very comfortable with the ways that we do uh, things maybe in Europe uh, and other exercises versus the way they've sort of um, developed their own skill set the other difference, I think, between Australia uh, and Pitch Black and other, other exercises was just the sheer volume of airspace we had access to. It was a very unique uh, bit of airspace, very little controlled airspace around it. Uh, the Australian Air Force had set up a fantastic um, sort of uh, set of uh, special instructions for us to be able to operate under. So we're all operating safely together in a uh, a huge part of airspace. So it made it quite unique. Even some of the other exercises uh, been to in Europe, uh, you will find there are a load of restrictions around the different airspace. And, and it's very difficult to find a large enough block of air that to put in 50 plus aircraft uh, on one side versus an adversary. So it, to that respect, it was it was pretty unique. Yeah, um, I had the privilege to interview Group Captain Matthew McCormack, which is episode 26 of Go Bold. In that chat, he was describing how instead of having a kind of a, a continuous evolution of the exercise, each mission would be a standalone mission or each sortie. 
And he said that that allowed pilots to kind of get the training that they needed without anybody really falling behind. Yeah. So it was uh, for us where we were um, as a squadron, um, we'd been very operationally focused for a number of years. So that uh, that setup really works very well for us. Um, we had some pilots who um, had recently joined the squadron who'd not uh, flown in a large uh, force employment exercise before. So actually having it at that sort of building block process um, allowed us to be able to put in our junior pilots to be able to see how an LFE worked. And that idea of not being not falling behind um, was actually quite important. So it gave us an opportunity, I think, to be able to train our own people within that environment. That was um, the good thing about the, the exercise. So it allowed us to develop those skills of being able to launch mass, um, combat mass into the air in a short space of time, which is something you don't necessarily see a lot of here in the UK, certainly operating from the same base. Hey folks, here's a message about our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Did you know that Cubic supports combat training by providing warfighters a common data model called SPEAR? And SPEAR stands for Simplified Planning, Execution, Analysis, and Reconstruction. SPEAR was envisioned, designed, and fielded by current and former warfighters. The software suite ingests data from multiple domains like air, land, sea, space, and cyber, and all environments like live, virtual, and constructive, regardless of how that data is captured, and it translates it into a common model. SPEAR is used to support mission planning, execution, and debrief, and it enables subjective data labeling and categorization throughout the mission cycle, the result of which is an enriched data file which can be used for learning management, readiness assessments, artificial intelligence, and machine learning advancement. The revolutionary SPEAR software allows warfighters to visualize operations throughout the mission training cycle or during combat operations, and that enables forces to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, the SPEAR common data model enables real change. To learn more about it, please visit cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat. So if you were to pick one mission or one sortie that you did that was particularly notable to you, because as you mentioned, there's all these different aircraft that perhaps you don't get the opportunity to fly with too often. Um, There was the Rafales from France, which it's in your neighborhood, but there's the SU-30 MKIs from India, the Singaporean aircraft. Um, I don't know if there's one particular mission that stands out for you. So we had one mission, we were doing a defensive counter-air mission. So uh, that was us defending our own territory against an adversary. Uh, And we had launched three typhoons into the the wave. And we had four F-35Bs from the United States Marine Corps, four F-35As from the Royal Australian Air Force, uh, and also supported by Growler. Uh, and also with other fourth gen platforms from Singapore, uh, all on our uh, side, all on in the same lane. And we were flying against uh, the adversaries, which was being played on that day by the SU-30 MKIs and also with some EW assets in the uh, 
uh, in the adversary side as well, um, giving us some sort of jamming as well. So it was it was challenging, even though it was uh, unclassified, and the the threat that we were working against um, was uh, not the highest threat that we've certainly trained against in the UK. But it was it was challenging enough, uh, and it was it was a really memorable sortie by the fact that we have the ability to operate with the fifth gen platforms and with the Wedgetail Airborne as well. Again, that bringing together of all those different capabilities um, in that one place, uh, I think it was pretty memorable. Uh, and uh, and also we, we were lucky enough to refuel off the US Marine Corps C-130 as well before the mission, which was something I've never done before. Um, so that was uh, that was pretty, uh, pretty good fun as well. Awesome. Awesome. So what was it like uh, to, to refuel from a KC-130 as opposed to the A330 MRTT, the Royal Air Force Voyager? So the RF Voyager we're very used to, um, the speeds, the techniques to be able to refuel off the Voyager. And actually, a lot of other nations brought their own versions of the A330 MRTT. Um, so everyone's flying around about the same speed, um, and it all um, is all pretty familiar. Um, the C-130 flies a lot slower. So we're flying a lot slower ourselves and the aircraft is holding quite a lot more alpha. So it's sort of sat back on its tail a little bit more uh, as a delta wing. It tends to do that uh, mm -hmm. when you're flying slower. Um, and uh, But luckily, the basket is slightly bigger uh, and quite stable. So um, it's it was unfamiliar, but it was also quite, uh, quite enjoyable just trying to uh, trying to be able to do something new, do something we haven't done before. Um, it just brings more experience to the to the pilots on the squadron. Um, so if we ever had to in operations uh, refuel off an, uh, a C one thirty, then we've seen it before, uh, and we can share those experiences across the squadron. And little techniques and tips are really handy just to share between everybody uh, in terms of just sort of sitting slightly higher than you would normally um, because of the alpha. Um, so no, it was a good experience. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. And that's the beauty of exercises like this is is getting exposed or having the ability to see dissimilar aircraft and operate with other aircraft that you typically might not. Um, yeah, just what an invaluable experience. Um, talk to me a little bit, if you don't mind, uh, to whatever level you can, about the integration of fifth gen aircraft and I don't know how you would categorize a Typhoon. I would say it's probably a 4.5 gen aircraft. Um, but you mentioned operating with the Marine Corps F-35Bs and, and the Australian F-35As. Um, what was that like? So the beauty of working with the fifth gen is that brings a whole uh, level of situational awareness uh, um, from, the, from the F-35s uh, and also from F-22 when we've worked with them before. Uh, what Typhoon can do is it can carry a lot of ordnance. Um, and therefore, what you do is you play the strengths of the fifth gen platforms alongside the four to 4.5 gen aircraft, uh, i.e. in terms of uh, amount of weapons that can be carried by the fourth gen and the sensor suite from the fifth gen. And when you combine those two together, then you have a pretty formidable uh, team um, and also working together on Link 16 will mean that you can communicate with the other aircraft uh, through digital means rather than just through voice, um, which means that you can also protect yourself against potentially comms jamming or denied environments in the future. So together, it makes a, a very good uh, a very good team, and that's certainly the way we're looking to operate in the future. Yeah, that's a wonderful explanation. Um, 
So now that we've kind of tackled exercise pitch black, which just sounds like an amazing opportunity, a uh, great training value. Uh, what did the Royal Air Force do afterwards? Was it a direct line back to the UK or did you participate in any other exercises on the way back to the UK? So on the way back, we flew a very similar route to before. We went to Malaysia uh, instead of uh, Singapore on the way back uh, and landed at Butterworth. Uh, that in itself was quite challenging uh, because the fast jets we landed at Butterworth and the tanker landed in Penang. Oh, um, so yeah. there was a, an hour and a half drive between the two, uh, which uh, which was, again, tested us logistically. Um, the sweeper that I mentioned before, the A400, was able to land in Butterworth. So we had our engineers with us from the A400. Um, so, uh, again, that was just a, a different way of operating. Uh, but that was just a, uh, uh, an overnight stop. And then we went back into Delhi. Uh, and then when we were in Delhi, we did some interoperability training with the Indian Air Force. So uh, launched um, up to meet up with uh, SU-30s and Rafale as well, uh, just on a very basic um, basic exercise, um, just locally, um, as much as anything, to be able to sort of uh, take a picture of quite a, uh, a unique event uh, of uh, having SU-30 and uh, Rafale and a Typhoon uh, from the Royal Air Force uh, flying together uh, with the Indian Air Force, who we've got very close links with from, uh, as I said, previous exercises, including Indrajanush, uh, and also a little bit of um, defence engagement on the ground as well, um, getting to know those uh, uh, the pilots uh, a little bit at the Indian Air Force, but also uh, look, talking to some of the engineers as well about um, what Typhoon can do, um, along with their sort of programme of uh, building their own indigenous aircraft. Right on. And then from India was, uh, I guess, direct back uh, back to the UK? Uh, from India, uh, we went to uh, back into the United Arab Emirates uh, and then from there into Akrotiri, but this time just stopping uh, overnight uh, and then uh, coming back to Lossiemouth uh, from, uh, from there for the Voyager. Uh, that landed with our people into Lossiemouth. Uh, and then the aircraft, as I said earlier, went into RAF Coningsby as part of the, sort of the fleet restructuring and they were uh, going back into their sort of maintenance program at RF Collingsby. Right. Okay. So now that we've kind of done the full circle, um, what could you say are some of the main takeaways from the exercise, um, perhaps lessons learned that, that you and your squadron mates have come away with? I think the main one is the, the logistics required to operate at reach across the world. Um, so we didn't have a huge amount of time to plan for Pitch Black, and it was relatively short notice for us. But uh, you know, we made it there uh, with all four aircraft. Um, but there was a lot of work along the way to, to keep that going uh, from the uh, air-to-air refueling experts um, to keep the plan sort of moving along, but also logistically with the A400. Um, and so trying to operate out range, um, it highlighted some of those sort of challenges and, and be able to get spares over to the other side of the world is quite a challenge. And therefore, um, for us to in the future to sort of continue that um, ability to operate a range, then, you know, having the logistical footprint, uh, having all those things in place uh, is going to be key. Uh, I think tactically on the exercise, the biggest takeaway was really how similar some of the other air forces are to us. You go there uh, with all these other international nations thinking that, um, you couldn't possibly be doing everything the same way, but it was so reassuring and um, comforting to know that actually a lot of 
the other nations operate in a very similar way. And once you put the exercise on top of this, in terms of the way we do business and the way we operated, uh, it just meant that it was really good environment for us to be able to take away some of the tactical lessons, uh, but also more sort of operationally and strategically understanding how other air forces work and how uh, what onus they put on um, uh, various parts of tactics, uh, the domestic elements of it, the safety, etc. So that was really fascinating to sort of take away from it. Um, and it was an, a fantastic opportunity for the RAF and our pilots on Six Squadron to experience being the other side of the world uh, and having done it themselves and flown out there in the aircraft themselves and get all the way back. Um, it's just one of those unique opportunities. It's certainly very memorable. Yeah, it definitely speaks to the deployability of the Royal Air Force. And yeah, the only way that you learn lessons is to actually do it. So um, no, very, very cool. So as we close out, Wing Commander Reeves, I'd like to ask you about your views, your, your perspective on air warfare. How do you see it evolving? And in particular, how do you see training will have to evolve? You know, you just went through this exercise, um, but how do you see that training will have to evolve to be representative of the potential peer threat that allied forces face? I think one of the key things about the training for future warfare is going to be uh, embracing some of the synthetic elements of it. Much as we pilots love to go and fly, um, and it's part of the job that most people wouldn't, wouldn't want to um, say goodbye to, and there, is, there are certain things that you can do in a synthetic environment um, that you can't do in a live environment. Um, part of it is classification. Part of it is replication of the threat accurately. But we can do that in a synthetic environment. So I think a lot of um, our higher-end training is going to shift towards synthetics and potentially blended um, uh, synthetic and um, and live approach and therefore we talk about a live synthetic balance uh, and it is exactly that it's a it's the very fine balance between pilots getting in the air and feeling what it's like to be in a fast jet all the physiological parts of flying a high performance aircraft need to be felt to be understood and also to be able to be harnessed um, but there's a lot of work that needs to go into synthetics uh, and a lot of work that we can do in the sim that we can't do live so it has to be a blend and it has to be a balance. So I think it's these large force employment exercises, uh, such as exercise pitch black, are a key part of that live element because it's very difficult to replicate 50 aircraft, um, air traffic, weather, all linking into the same mission to do that synthetically. Um, so I think that's one of the key things that's going to develop in the future is going to be getting that balance right to get the right half of live flying and all the physiological aspects and also the high-end classified element of what we can do in the sim uh, where there aren't necessarily people watching. Yeah, and I think one of the other benefits of that from what I know of live virtual constructive is that you can bring in elements that are not local to you. So, you know, if it's all in a secure network, um, you could have those training evolutions with different folks um, all contributing to the same to the same effort. Absolutely. And I think the one of the exercises I've been on, uh, we were flying using the simulators here. We were talking to JTACs who are in the synthetic environment, who are in a different location uh, with a Type 45 simulator in a different location. So not only this live synthetic blend 
um, and the vir live virtual construct, but just the virtual construct that could be created. Uh, everyone in their own uh, mission systems able to bring together all those different capabilities to build a very realistic environment where people are operating um, their own platforms as opposed to facilitators in a simulator who are pretending to be various different elements. So having the, the actual people um, who, whose jobs it is in those different roles is, is quite a key to go forward, I think, to build a realistic synthetic environment that, that will give us that high-end training. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think that's so important. As we close out, I'd just like to ask you, uh, what is next for yourself, Wing Commander Rees, and uh, what is next for number six squadron? So six squadron, uh, we are deploying uh, in support of Op Shader uh, in the early part of next year. Uh, so at the moment, we're sort of in our workup for that. Uh, and then after that, once we come home, we'll be sort of in a period of recuperation, following operations and building up to our next sort of part in the cycle. Um, for me, I've got another uh, just under uh, two years here on the squadron, which I'm very much looking forward to. So I'll be moving on uh, mid through 2024. Uh, and then next to me, uh, to be confirmed, but I'm hoping to sort of go into um, maybe more of the sort of central defense uh, staff roles to have a look at some of the things that I found quite interesting on Pitch Black in terms of the defense engagement and the strategic parts of working with different nations and looking at those partnerships. So uh, a, a role in sort of MOD in that sort of area will probably be where I'm going next, hopefully. That is very cool. Well, I hope prior to that next phase of your career, I hope that we will have the opportunity to speak again, because one of my guests was a Royal Canadian Air Force pilot who flew on exchange with the Typhoon uh, in the Royal Air Force. And we talk a little bit about Op Shader there, but I think it would be awesome to get a six uh, squadron perspective on Op Shader if, if that's something that, that you'd be open to doing. Yeah, that should be good. Awesome. Awesome. I look forward to that opportunity. And I thank you very, very much, Wing Commander Rees, for taking the time to speak with me on Go Bold. I, I love the exercise that you participated in. Sounds like it was a lot of uh, great training value. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate your insight and your perspective on the exercise and on air warfare writ large. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, sir. That, my friends, was Wing Commander Noel Rees of the Royal Air Force. Uh, if you have any questions for us at Go Bold, please write to us at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. And we wish everybody a wonderful day. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.